Welcome everyone who is here in person. So thankful for all of you joining us online. If you ever fly out or you're flying back from the West Coast, there's a chance that you may be on a path where you go right over the Grand Canyon. And, and if so, usually the pilot will come on and will tell you, if you look to your left or you look to your right, you may be able to see the Grand Canyon. And when this happens, you get a sense of how big that place is. Now, you can't see all the colors and you can't see all the, the creative design, but you can see how massive the Grand Canyon is. And it's one way to see the Grand Canyon. Now, most people who go to see the Grand Canyon, you're not going, like you're not flying out to California, so you get a picture of flying over it. Usually you go there and, and most people will go and they'll see, they'll, they'll go hang out at the rim. So you're not hiking down in it. You're not taking a tour like some helicopter tour where you're over it. You're just right there at the rim. And for most people, this is not threatening. This is a very safe way to see it. You don't have to hike. You don't have to get tired. You can take a lot of pictures. How many of you have either been to the Grand Canyon or if you went, this is how you would do it. Stay at the rim. We're going to keep it safe. Now, sometimes you can get pictures going all the way down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. This was not a picture I took, though I would love to take credit for it. I've never been down there. I know the Alexanders have. I know Brent Patterson and Seth King have. Now, here's the thing. Like, there is no car that can take you to the bottom of the Grand Canyon where you can start hiking there. If you take pictures or you take a view, you get a view of the Grand Canyon from the bottom, you have to earn it. You have to work your way all the way down there so you can get a view from there. How many of you have either done it or this is how you would like to see the Grand Canyon? A show of hands, maybe a few of you. Now, Casey and I, we went back in 2019. I've been a couple of times. We decided to hike a little bit down there. Now, when we did, our personalities came out. Like, I was on the edge because that's where I live. Luke, that's where seven's on the Enneagram. That's where we live. It's adventure. I'm on the edge. Casey, Casey was like this walking the Grand Canyon, all right? She's like up against the side a little bit. And then we found ourselves struggling over the boys because I wanted the boys to come to the edge. She wanted the boys to be safe. And I was like questioning her. I was like, baby, do you want our kids to be raised with faith in God or not? Because faith in God is being on the edge taking a risk and she's like faith in God is using your brain and making good decisions in life like it so we found ourselves like tugging the kids but it, this view we had I mean you could see up you could see down you could get close to the edge you could decide to stay up against the cliff up against the side that was safer and then maybe you could do what Will Smith did on his birthday his 50th birthday he decided to jump out of a helicopter and the bungee jump to experience the Grand Canyon how many of you would like to do that right where you get a bouncing for a little while and that's how you see it look there are a lot of different ways you could experience and see the Grand Canyon and when you think you have seen it from every angle possible there is still more Right now we're in a study, we're in a series called Scandal of the Cross. We're looking at different motifs of the cross. And as we do this, I'm trying to help you catch the cross and look at the cross from a different angle because most of us, whether we believe it or not, have kind of had one or maybe two angles that you have viewed the cross and how you have read scripture about the cross most of your life. And that's okay, God has worked in that. What I'm trying to do is to give you a different angle to look at the cross because we can look at the cross from all different angles. We can read all the different motifs that the script that scripture uses to talk about the cross and then there is still more. 
There is so much that happened in that event on the cross. Let me just recap the seven motifs that I'm kind of walking us through right now. We've talked about Christus Victor, and I'm going to talk more about this on Easter Sunday. This is the motif that teaches us that on the cross, Jesus won a victory forever. Jesus took on the powers of hell, so the cross was more than just you and Jesus. It was about Jesus doing something for the entire cosmos. Jesus won a battle on the cross. We're going to talk about scapegoat in a couple of weeks, how Jesus became a scapegoat where all the sins of the world were placed on Jesus and he has carried them far, far away. Last week we talked about ransom, that throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, there is a a ransom that, that when we sin, we are held in bondage and a price has to be paid for our freedom. And Jesus paid that price with his own body. He paid that price with his own death to set people free. Uh, Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the Passover lamb, where Jesus becomes the ultimate Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice for everyone. We talked last week, and I'm going to talk more today, about what is known as penal substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. And for most of you, this is the way you have been taught to view the cross, that sin meant that you were separated from God, and Jesus stepped in and took your place so that the wrath of God is not placed on you, it was placed on Jesus. There's also moral, uh, the moral exemplar motif, which is Jesus set a moral example by the way he lived his life, where he was sacrificial in his life, sacrificial in his death, and last but not least, is solidarity. That Jesus became like us in every way possible. He walked the ground we walk on. He bled our blood, he died a death, he died our death so that we could live. Solidarity, he became like us in every way. Now, I go through these seven motifs not to say which one is your favorite, Or which one do you want to be your favorite? I'm trying to give you different ways to think about the crucifixion so that God will grow your appreciation for the cross, so that God can broaden the significance of the meaning of the cross in your life. And last but not least, and this may be my favorite right now, is for you to know that faith is not about you working your way to get to God. It's God opening up your eyes and your heart to see all the ways God has worked to get to you. All the ways God has worked to get to us. Stephen Sykes says it like this. Imagine a person totally committed to your best interests, devoted to seeing you flourish, fighting for you against all enemies, determined to eliminate everything destructive from your life, attentive to every detail of who you are, never thinking of himself at all, but only of you. That is Jesus in relation to us all. Sacrificial in his life, sacrificial in his death. So today we sang songs earlier. Here's the thing when it comes to Jesus. Like, we don't serve a dead Savior who did something heroic. We serve a living Savior who died a death to change the world forever. And now Jesus has asked you, has asked us to live our lives responding to that event for the rest of our life. So this morning I want to talk about a motif of the blood of Christ, which fits within atonement and Passover lamb. Like, you'll find little pieces of nuggets of how the Bible uses the blood of Christ and every motif that was on the screen earlier. And I want to talk about the blood of Jesus, and this is tough, right? We've, st- we, we, we've called this sermon series Scandal of the Cross, which is based off 1 Corinthians 1.23, where Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which to the Jews it's a scandal, and to the Gentiles it's foolishness. To the Gentiles, there was, no, uh, there, there was no philosophy out there that could wrap a mind around why there would be a cross. And to the Jews, it was a complete scandal. Not that Jesus died, but how he died, a death by crucifixion. And for many people today, I have friends who fit within this category. Like, I have friends who the blood of Christ 
is such a stumbling block for them to understand the mystery of God and what it is Jesus has offered to the world. Like, why did there have to be so much blood? Like, most of us, when we see blood today or we think of blood, like, we work hard to, like, put pressure on it or make it stop or put a Band-Aid or get it sewed up. And, and you probably know, like, kids, or maybe this is you, that you fall and you scrape your knee, you scrape your hand, and, you it, like, no pain at all. You're fine, but the moment you see blood, like, life is over. You ever, any of your kids do this, right? Like you try to keep them from seeing the blood because if they see it, now it becomes a really, really big deal. I told you a few weeks ago, in our house, Casey does not do blood. When she sees blood, she passes out. Now, she's gotten really good at this so to, to a point now where she sees it, she knows she's about to pass out, so she'll go ahead and put her body in a napping position so that when she passes out, she's already down there. It's the cutest thing in the world, all right? She just... She just goes down like the thought of blood. And, I, and I've told you before, like throw up, vomit is, is my greatest phobia in the world. So we joked with our kids a few weeks ago. We said, if there's ever a moment when you were bleeding and throwing up at the same time, your parents are out. Like we, we are not going to be any help to you. We're bouncing and we're out. Casey's literally bouncing and she's out. I'm like, I'm leaving. Now, when I leave, I'm not a dad who's just going to leave my kids. It's hanging there. I'm going to take my phone with me because I'm going to make the necessary phone calls and probably put some on social media because I'm not going to be a dad who totally abandons my kids. We're going to take care of them. But when it comes to the blood, like we run from it, right? We cover it up. It's a mess. We try to get out the stain. Yeah, why does uh, there's so many references in the Bible to the blood of Jesus? And Fleming Rutledge, he wrote the book, The Crucifixion, one of the best books on the crucifixion I've ever read. She, she, makes the re she says the references in the New Testament to the blood of Jesus are three times more than references in the New Testament to the death of Jesus. So references to the blood of Jesus are all over Scripture. Let me show you just a few, and I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, this is where Luke is telling this account in, in Ephesus of uh, Paul, who is with shepherds, says, Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. In Ephesians 1 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians 1:19, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. In Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. And I love that phrase right there. Some of you may need to go back to Hebrews 10, 19, that through the blood of Jesus, confidence has been given to you to enter the, 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 the presence of God. In verse 20, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great uh, priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. And I've just shared a few references with you. And I've shared references with you from Luke, from Paul, from Peter, from John, that when they process and think faith, and when they process gospel, the phrase, the blood of Jesus, shows up over and over and over again. Now, Rutledge points out in her book, that when you see references to the blood of Christ in the New Testament, this is not about some hideous mess that the blood made. 
This is a metaphor for the death of Christ that has set the rule free. Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, she talks about like wrapping her mind around the blood of Christ was really hard to do because we don't live in a sacrificial system anymore where there are a lot of lambs who were dying for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and she did a lot of study on ancient culture. And what she found was that in many of us, when we think blood, we may think death or dying. But for thousands of years, people, when they think blood, they think life. And even when something dies, it dies so that life could continue moving on with other people. So this is why for thousands of years, you had blood covenants that still happen today in some places, right? Where either two people form a blood covenant or two groups of people as they reconcile. And the oath and the bond that is made through a blood covenant is something you would never break. But why did there have to be so much blood? Uh, this may age some of you, but how many of you went to the theaters to see The Passion of the Christ? Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Right? I think it's been almost, I don't know, 20 years since the movie came out. And if you remember The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen it, it has very little to do with the resurrection of Jesus. I think there are three seconds at the very end given to the resurrection of Christ. It's an entire movie about the death of Jesus, the, how horrific the death of Christ was. I know there were churches, and I think Sycamore View did. This is, was before my time here, but uh, I think you did this, where churches rented out theaters so that their whole church could go and watch it together. Yet that movie made a lot of parents. It was a challenge because we, many of us grew up in families where we were taught, like, you do not go see rated R movies at all, or you will be grounded for the rest of your life. But what do you do when Jesus is the main character of a rated R movie, right? What do you do in that moment? And then there was like, like, what's an appropriate age? Do we take six-year-olds to see the passion of the Christ or 10-year-olds or 14-year-olds? Because it is rated R not because of cursing and it's not rated R because of intimate scenes. It's rated R because there is so much violence and so much blood, which would have been an accurate depiction of what crucifixions were like. The Roman Empire didn't invent crucifixions, but they perfected it. And they used it not just to kill people, but to make a statement to everyone else. It was a spectacle to everyone else. And the crucifixion, a crucifixion, wasn't just about someone dying. It was humiliation all the way up to the moment, all the way through the moment. And it wasn't just humiliation for the person who would hang on the cross. It was meant to be humiliation for their family, their friends, their community, where they're from. From beginning to end, it was about humiliating the person and literally breaking them down in their bodies and breaking them down in their mind. The mocking and the scorning that came after Jesus is something that would have happened to almost anybody who was crucified. And they wouldn't take him way outside of town on the other side of a hill where they crucify him in some private place where they die. It would have been on a hill where everybody could have seen it. It was humiliating. And for most people, all the stuff that happened before they even were hung on a cross or nailed to a cross, they're already half dead because of the, the lashings and all the other beatings. They're half dead before they even hang there. And then you hang there, and for some people, it would only take a few hours, and for others, it would take days. But hanging on a cross with everybody who would pass by, yelling things at you, unable to move your body to swat away the flies or the birds, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but this was humiliation from beginning to end. 
There's really nothing we have in our culture today that even gets close to what it would be like. And I, I, I don't know what you think about like capital punishment and death penalty, but some people talk about how the cross may be like an electric chair, but most forms of capital punishment that we know of today are meant to kill someone fairly quickly, and it's not meant to be seen by the general public. Unlike a crucifixion, which was meant to take hours and hours, and where especially the Roman Empire wanted other people to see it. For you to know, if you do something like what this person did, the same thing's going to happen to you. You need to remember who's in charge. It was horrific from beginning to end. I think the closest thing we have to what a crucifixion would have been like are lynchings. You know, just down past putt-putt golfing games, just over a mile from where we worship every Sunday. On May 22nd, 1917, L. Persons was lynched. Just right back behind putt-putt golfing games where that where the, uh, little stream, uh, there, there's a creek back there. And this was something that this became one of the most horrific lynchings in all of Shelby County because as the story goes, around 5,000 people showed up to watch it. This is 1917, so it's not like you put something on social media. They were handing out flyers. They were inviting their neighbors. And the language that was used in 1917 is it was like a carnival-type feel. There were like food trucks. People hung out there all day. And they had captured this man, this young man, who was being accused of a crime before he went on trial. And the, the lynch, it took days leading up to it that this young man knew what was going to happen. What they did to break his mind and his body down, you can go read about in newspapers today. And that was not just a matter of killing one man. It was a statement to everybody else in Shelby County meant to struck fear in a certain group of people and maybe all people. And that doesn't even come close to what Jesus bore on the cross for days People would, leading up to it, he knew what was going to happen, all the humiliation that went into it. One of the earliest pieces of Christian art that has been found. Uh, there's this, this uh, man who lived around 200 uh, AD, so this may have been second century Christianity, and we know nothing about this man. But this was found, and if you go to the next image right here, this gives you a clear picture of what this was like, where uh, if you go to the, the next image, there's this man who is worshiping what looks like a donkey-faced person hanging on a cross, where there was a follower of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, a crucified Savior, and that the Roman Empire created art to mock the worship of someone who died on the cross and to mock the person who worshipped him. Everything about crucifixion was horrific. Now, to understand the blood of Christ, you don't just need to understand sacrifices that go way back into the Old Testament. You need to understand temple structure. So follow me quickly, all right? When you went to the temple in first century, the biggest area, one of the largest areas of the temple would have been the courtyard for the Gentiles. And this is where anybody in the world could come. This would have been where Jesus cleansed the temple, where Jesus declared to all people that this is right here is supposed to be a house of prayer. And then as you went past that, there was the women's court. And that's as far as the women could go. And then past the women's court, there was the men's court. And that was as far as most men could go. And then there was the priest's court. And that's as far as most priests could go. And then there was the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that is where the high priest could go once a year into that place. And there were gates and even some curtains separating groups of people from the others. 
So every year there would be the Day of Atonement. And this is the day where everybody was supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem where you would confess your sins and then you would see the high priest go into the most holy place. And could you imagine being there? Like, this was a big deal. When that priest would go into the most holy place, you knew he was going in there to offer up to God a sacrifice for the forgiveness of people. Now, the Day of Atonement was a day of confession. And as they confessed, the way they confessed, it wasn't stuff like, uh, I guess I'm kind of sorry for the things I did this past year. Or at least my sin wasn't as bad as Bubba's sins from this past year. Or, or their, their attitude wasn't, you know, boys are going to be boys and men are going to be men and teenagers are going to be teenagers and people are just going to be people. It was my sin has separated me from God. And this was an experience that was meant to help people take God seriously and to take sin seriously. And the system that was set up in the temple, the system, the festivals, the sacrifices, they were good. They were effective, but they weren't complete. And there's one word or one phrase I want you to know. Shows up especially in the book of Hebrews. But this one phrase of ephopox, which means once for all, this is what Jesus did. Where today, Jesus doesn't have to end this day by going back to a cross to deal with the sins that we commit today once for all in one event. Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world to set the world free. Once for all. Here's how one person says it. It says, Christ's blood is a metaphor that stands primarily for the suffering love of God it suggests that there is no sorrow God has not known, no grief he has not borne, no price he is unwilling to pay in order to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. It is a love that has endured the bitterest realities of suffering and death in order that its purposes might prevail. And let me walk you through quickly Hebrews chapter 9 with very little commentary Feel free to open up your Bible where you are or look on the screen. And what I've helped teach you about the temple and the blood of Christ, about the, how horrific the crucifixion would have been, every curtain and every gate in the temple that separated people from people, the death of Jesus tore it down. So that now Gentiles and Jews, slaves and free, men and women can approach the throne room of God with confidence. And we don't have to go through some sacrificial system because the price has been paid. And here's Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was constructed, the first one in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. This is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a tent called the holy of holies. And in it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which there were a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot speak now in detail. But such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. But only the high priest goes into the second. And he, once, for, once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. This is a symbol of the present time. 
during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Hence, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been told to all the people by Moses in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Will you stand together as I read the last part of Hebrews chapter 9? And just to invite you where you are, if you're willing, just to open up your hands and just receive this as a blessing of the sacrifice of Jesus and what God has done for you. Thus it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have to have had to suffer again and again since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And for the reading of the word of God, the people say, Amen. Please be seated. And here in just a moment, we're going to offer a time for communion. And we're so glad to be back together in one space to be able to take the bread and the cup together. So just a few instructions as we do this, because we're doing it a little differently. We've had the stuff you take to your seat, the bread and the cup you've take, taken to your seat now for almost two years. And we're creating some movement in the room. So there are six tables, two up front, two in the middle, and two up against those back walls. And all of them have the bread and cup in them. It is stacked. So you have the cup, and underneath the cup is the bread. So it'll be two cups. So you'll take that... Take the cup from the bread, and that, that's how you will take them here in just a moment. If you are unable to move for any reason, like just mobility is hard for you, if you'll let someone else on your row know, and they will bring the bread and cup to you. In the early church, they used to do this. 
where they would serve one another or take communion from their worship experience and they would take it to widows. So the act of serving you would be a great honor. There are three things you can do when you go to a table here in just a moment. And we're going to have an extended period of time for this. So you don't have to rush to a table. You can move at your own pace. And this isn't about when people finish, we're done. We're going to be in a moment with each other and with God for a few minutes. So take your time. And when you get to a table, you could choose just to take the bread and the cup right there and just throw the cups into a trash can. Or you could choose together in a circle anywhere in this room with family members or friends that you may want to take communion with. Or you can take the bread and the cup and go right back to your seat where you can take the bread and the cup in a seated place and just have a time of reflection with you and God. We're going to have a shepherd who's going to be up front to my right to receive uh, by this exit sign to receive anyone for prayer. If you have something you want to bring before this church, we'll also have a shepherd in the back by the back exit sign to receive you for prayer during this time. I love the thought of God moving toward us, and I love the thought of us as a church moving to God with each other. And as we take the bread and the cup, this reminds us of everything Jesus did all of the motifs of the cross and the kind of people God is calling us to be as we leave this place and enter into a world this week. So this is for freedom. For those of you who like just to have a communion time with you and God, you have that freedom. And for those of you who want to take the most important meal you will ever take with family members and friends, there is opportunity for you to take that together. There's going to be some soft music playing just to hover over this moment. And then for the next few minutes, we invite you just to move at a pace that is good for you to one of these tables. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. For God, this morning we, sing, we have lifted up songs to you. We have opened up the word. And God, if anything we have done or anything I've done that hasn't honored who you are or what your heart is, forgive us for those things there's anything I have said that doesn't honor your heart, your nature, your character, may they fall to the ground, be trampled by you, and not be remembered at all. But God, if we have honored this morning in any way the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Jesus, may there be truths that come from you that can sink deep in the hearts, that can grow us and can bear great fruit throughout this week. And now, God, we come to what is the most important moment of our Sundays together where we take a meal that is being celebrated in countries all over the world today, a meal that has been celebrated by the church for 2,000 years as we remember everything Jesus has done to redeem and free us. So God, we offer up this time to you, all the movement, all the prayers that will be prayed, we offer all this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. If I can ask a couple of shepherds who can go and just be close to some of these tables as we move. And over the next few minutes, you're invited just to move at your own pace.